0: ordained this afternoon with John flying around in their robes, so send up a prayer for them. Um, we are looking quite carefully through this letter to the church in Colossae. Colossi, Colossi? do we think? Um, this 2, 6 and 7, so you might want to get a Bible because we are going to follow it quite carefully if you've got one on your phone or in the pew, um, but the beginning of that reading, verses 6 and 7, at I think like a great big hinge in the argument that Paul's making here Um, if you were here for the last few weeks you will have heard this incredible cosmic mind-blowing vision of Jesus that Paul has laid out in chapter 1 he is the image of the invisible God he's the firstborn of all creation he's the creator of everything he is before all things and in him all things hold together He is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is God's mystery. And in him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. I think you can see what Paul is doing there. He wants you to catch the supremacy, the unspeakable supremacy of Jesus all in all. And there are massive, sort of, well, well, massive in the, in one sense, but these gems of what Christ has done in there as well. Absolute classic one in chapter one thirteen, where it says He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then in six and seven. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, it now walk in him, or live in him, live out of him. And the rest, this next little bit, is all about that If as you are rooted in him, every aspect of your life will now be lived out of the truth that he is Lord your values, your choices, how you spend your time, how you see justice, how you see love, how you treat people. There is nothing in your life that is beyond the lordship of Jesus. The lordship of Jesus there at the center of everything will shape and govern how you live. So in that little verse, in verse six and seven there, it's like a little summary before he goes on and it sort of throws the argument forward for the next bit of Colossians. Um, But he paints a picture there, you will have seen, of both roots. He says, be rooted in Christ. And just as you have been firmly rooted and now being built up in him. So do you see those two metaphors, both of a plant with great big deep roots and also of a building with a great big deep foundation? And we all know, don't we, whether it's with plants or buildings, that it, um, one, how deep those roots are will govern how resilient that plant is going to be. You would never have a foundation for a building and then build somewhere else. So he's, he's saying, check out your foundation. Build on that foundation. And I love that all through this letter, the beginning at the end and in the middle, Paul says, what will happen if you have deep roots in Christ is this, your life will overflow with thanksgiving. And the word there isn't, isn't, you know, it's just like super abundant. You won't be able to help yourself. Your life will overflow with thanksgiving. And I can't help thinking in such a time as this, what a powerful sign of the kingdom at work that would be, that we are people whose lives overflow with thanksgiving. Why is that? It's because in Christ, we, we can't not be thankful. Whatever is happening around us, we are given a gift of thankfulness. So in chapter 1 then, he set out the foundations, and then in chapter 2, as 8 and following go on, he tells us why you need a deep foundation. And he's already given us a little clue in chapter 2, 4, where he says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. And then in um, 8, no, sorry, yes, 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceptions. Then if you look down in 16, he says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge. And then again in 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Fantastic, isn't it? And you can see that he's building up a sense now of, of warning this little church. Don't let anyone throw you off course. Don't let anyone up uproot you. Because Then, just as now, there will always be people propagating ideas that threaten to undermine your faith. Did you know that? There will always be people spreading ideas that will undermine your faith unless you have deep, deep roots into Christ. And Paul uses a very unusual word here, apparently, for to take captive. Don't let anyone take you captive through philosophy and empty deception. And in the original language, that word for captive is very unusual, and it sounds like the word for synagogue. So lots of people think that um, the, the sort of false teaching he's talking about is something to do with pulling people back into traditions and the laws of Judaism. And they're getting these these brand new sort of pagan believers to start believing that they need more than simply Christ in order to be fully saved. Uh, But there's a real mix as the letter goes on, as you'll see next week, with angel worship and ecstatic experiences of some kind and pagan magical stuff going on. But the question for us is as powerful as ever, I think. What are you living according to? What are you living according to? Is there anything that is undermining your faith, shifting the place of Jesus? Who or what is governing the choices and habits of your life right now? around those powerful things like money and relationship and sex and food and alcohol and screen time, to name but a few. <laughs> Who is it we're listening to in terms of the values that we, we set for ourselves? Where are we getting the principles that underlie the way you are choosing to live your life? Where are they coming from? Because in this letter, there is clearly something going on, and reading between the lines, this letter is a response trying trying to make sure the church isn't so pressurized, this little fledgling church of new believers, that their faith begins to waver. He says, Wake up, stand firm, don't be swayed, don't be blown off course. And I, many years ago now, went on a hen weekend with about six of my friends. This is, this is the truth. They phoned the police where I worked because they were going to kidnap me from my place of work, which they did. And they, honestly, this is probably extremely foolish looking back, but they put a bag over my head, dragged me out of my place of work, shoved me into a car, and wouldn't let me see where we were. I did have a sense that, you know, I was actually with among friends. <laughs> but um, crazy. Anyway, once we were out of London, they took the bag off my head. This is not something to try at home. And and it turned out, the next day, they had arranged for us all to go sailing, among many other things. The thing was, we had to go in two boats, one person knew how to sail. I was in the boat, with none of us having any real idea about sailing. So it was all very good fun, we were in incredibly high spirits. We set off, uh, but nobody had really checked the wind. And so we did really well going one way, uh, but then the wind changed. So I don't know if that's ever happened to you, where you set out thinking you're going to end up there, but you end up over there. And in fact, we were completely stranded, the wind after a bit completely dropped down to nothing, and embarrassingly, we had to hail another boat full of lads and ask them to tow us back to to shore, which they thought was hilarious, and took off at such a speed that our boat literally plunged underwater. So I learned a lesson, Uh, None of us died, which is good. Um, But the thing is, in this life, there are prevailing winds, aren't there, that will blow you off course unless you resist in some way in order to get to where you want to be. What a week we've had, hey, with the funeral, the state funeral of the Queen this week. It was interesting in terms of our values, wasn't it, I think? Because there was a lot of talk about what the queen valued, the values she lived by, like duty and service. But it's funny how I think those are slightly undermined nowadays, as a bit old-fashioned and, for an older generation, a bit outdated. And I was actually very moved. I don't know if you found yourself, if you watched it, moved by unexpected things, but did they call them the naval rates? Or did I hear that wrongly? Ratings, Ratings, the naval ratings. Wasn't it extraordinary, I thought, that they were actually physically bearing the weight of this carriage, bearing the body of the Queen. And, And they did it so beautifully. Something struck me about this not being a love of duty, but a duty of love, as if they were sort of guarding this queen that they truly loved, right to the end, right right to the very end. And we can feel that duty so easily could fall into legalism, or, you know, pouring out our lives for others can often end up with us as some sort of doormat. We can feel like... Um, these things are unfreedom in some way. But it did remind me and make me ask myself well, what are our values? What do we value in this culture? And, and, and make no mistake, Jesus asks us to live counterculturally. He says, love your enemies, forgive those who sin against you. Take up your cross, deny yourself, give away what you have, crucify the flesh, be self-controlled. And to be frank, in the culture, sometimes they're way ahead of the church. But there are other ways in which we get deceived by buying into the values that have become normal in our culture. And I would say, thinking about it a bit this week, the church kind of fell into something where they were trying to be relevant Someone was telling me how they set up the whole church as a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory experience to kind of bridge you know, into the culture with the gospel. All those things are fab. But actually, I think at times we've made the mistake of trying so hard to be relevant within the culture that we've become indistinct from it. We haven't been the sign of the kingdom that we're designed to be as the church And Paul wants to remind this little church that they are to live lives boldly and distinctively according to Christ. He wants to bring to the church a fresh revelation, and this is the key, that they are complete in him. Christ as someone else very wisely said, Christ plus nothing equals everything. Christ plus nothing equals everything. And verse 9 says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and you have been made complete in him. So you don't need Jesus plus. You can't add to something that's already full. So there's nothing else that will save you, that will make you more you apart from Jesus. There's nothing else that will bring you Security and belonging. There's nothing else that will deal with the shame and the weight of sin in us, in others, and in, in the fabric of our broken world. What is threatening to take you captive? What is threatening to take you captive? And what would resisting that look like? To Holy Spirit, would you show us? Show us if we've been blown off course. God, show us if we have fallen into deception. or if we're living according to anything other than you, I asked some people this week what they thought were the values or assumptions or or sort of slogans that have been normalized in our culture and that could be at risk of, of blowing us off course as Christians. You may or may not agree with these, but I'll just, hey, here they are. Don't let anyone tell you what is right or wrong. Be true to yourself. If it feels right, it is right. You have your truth, but let me have mine. Loving yourself is not denying yourself anything you want. Authenticity means not doing anything that I don't want to do. This is why we need a bit of resistance, church. (laughs) John Mark Comer, who loads of you will adore, um, he gives us this great little summing up of the outworking of the fall, the reason why resistance is a thing. He says, we contend with deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. We contend with deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. And Paul loves this little church so much that he says, take care, take care. Don't fall into deception. Don't be blown off course. Now, there was a heresy going around. There's a thing called the Colossian heresy, and lots of people can't really pin down exactly what it is, but it clearly had something to do with these, little, these new pagan believers being pressurized to get circumcised. Who thought we'd be talking about foreskins? Um, and Paul's... Paul, when this question was coming up, should we be circumcised in order to be fully saved? Paul's answer was absolutely no, no. Circumcision was a stripping away of a little bit of flesh to mark out a people belonging to God. It was this identity marker in the flesh that you were part of the people of God that you were his. But it was also this reminder, I think, that under God's rule and trusting in God, it was a sort of physical marker that you were gonna surrender your own appetites, your own sexual drives, your own power. And if you think about that in the culture, the power of cro- procreation, the power of the status and position that it gave you if you had masses of children, and you know, not, not only did it give you status, but it secured your future. And this little marker in the flesh, I think, played a part in saying we surrender. We surrender all of this to you, Jesus. We, well, God, we trust you with this. And Paul is saying that that little, that little cutting away, that uh, little, little stripping away of the flesh is no longer needed because it's this tiny foreshadowing of what Jesus has done, that he has consecrated not just this tiny bit of us but all of us that he has stripped away and stripped of its power the sinful nature in all of us and he compares circumcision to this to this visual that had been afforded as these young believers had gone down into the waters of baptism because he says as you got plunged down into the grave You died with Christ and your sin got dealt with. The power of those corrupted desires was broken. And you in Christ are raised back to life, no longer defined by sin, no longer captive to sin, but free. And I think there's something in there about the flesh of Jesus, almost a whole body circumcision that Jesus went through as he was flogged and flayed and went to the cross for us. And that is why Paul says, please don't get circumcised. Christ has done something for you now. That makes um, circumcision something that you no longer need. And I was thinking it's like taking tablets, isn't it? When you take tablets, you get better, and you don't need to keep taking the tablets. The thing that the good thing that they did, they have now done. And if you keep taking the tablets, they'll start to harm you. And I think the little the little message for us maybe is don't go backwards. Don't go back to things you used to depend on that maybe did you good, that served a purpose in the past. And I felt, I don't know why, maybe there are a couple of people here that means something specific to you. Don't go back to stuff you depended on in the past to get you through. Don't depend on anything except for the saving power of Jesus. And then Paul finishes this passage with the most extraordinary flourish. If you look at verse 14... He says he's made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven all our trespasses, having canceled or blotted out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way. He has removed it, having nailed it to the cross. And probably to make sense of this, one, one helpful thing, anyway, I'm sure there are many things to take from that, but one thing is that when people were crucified, a note was nailed to the cross above their heads with their crimes written on it, so that people would know who were watching a crucifixion. They would both be, be um, deterred, but also that this was a public shaming, that they'd be able to read what they had done. And the rulers and authorities that Paul is speaking about that wage and set themselves up against God would love to accuse us. They would love to hold out this certificate, this record of wrongs, this record of a debt owed and a penalty that must be paid. And in this extraordinary picture Paul paints, he says, the thing is, as Jesus went to the cross, that little record, that little note, was blotted out. And Jesus took it and he, he nailed it to his own cross. He bore the penalty for our debt and the enemy is left powerless with nothing to, with which to accuse us. And then finally, verse 15 here, it says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And again, you need to know something from the ancient world, which was that they celebrated a triumph over an enemy, with these victorious generals and armies parading back into their home streets, with prisoners of war trailing behind them. The spoils of war coming behind them like a victory parade, with the most important captives, the rulers and the princes, right at the back, stripped naked and chained and shamed and humiliated and when we read verse 15 we should blink and think again because we're looking there at the cross we're looking there at a crucifixion where Jesus is hung naked and shamed and the rulers and authorities thought that this was a triumph for them they thought they had stripped him naked They thought they had shamed him. They thought he had failed and they had triumphed. When in fact, and this has to be the greatest paradox in history. In fact, in dying, he was stripping them naked. He was leaving them defeated and shamed. And he also took away their right to bring us in as captives. So Paul is saying, don't be taken captive. Jesus has paid the price. He's paid for your freedom. He's paid for that note to be blotted out once and for all. Don't let anyone hand you a half-sized Jesus. Don't let anyone blow you off course. You have owned him as your Lord. Now live out your life according to him and him alone.
1: Amen. Thanks so much, Joe. So could the band get themselves ready? Um, One of the things that we do in our deeper prayer context, when people get, we, we all get stuck in life and, um, we can get stuck by being blown off course, or we can get stuck by forgetting things or forgetting the main thing. Um, there's all sorts of ways we get blown off course and distracted and get a little bit uh, lose some of our life that we've we sort of can live our life sort of partially for Jesus, just because we've been distracted or tempted or something like that. And one of the things we do in our deeper prayer appointments is we help uh, ourselves to recognise. We, we say a prayer like this that says, "God, I, I recognise blank, blank, blank. You fill in the gaps. So, you know, I recognise I've got stuck with this, or I recognise that I've made this thing more important than You, or I recognise I've forgotten, dot, dot, dot." And then we we ask for God's forgiveness. And we ask for him to fill up that place with a true picture of who he is and who we are. So we're, we're going to do that together in quiet. And then um, we're going to bring, you know, sort of focus all that as we sing together. Is that okay? Yeah? Is that good? All right. Okay. So I'm going to lead us through. And I'll make some space for you to do your, your the work you need to do with the Lord. So Jesus, we... Declare you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And that by your life and death and resurrection, you have done everything completely that is necessary for us to know God and live our lives under the embrace of the love and power of God. But Lord Jesus, we just want to recognize before you any ways we have allowed ourselves to be distracted or blown off course. So I recognize that. And you just quietly tell the Lord the thing you want to recognize. something surprising or something that seems insignificant might come to your mind but sweep it in to the prayer don't don't run away from that and Lord Jesus I'm sorry for allowing myself to be distracted from your great love in this way so we come again into the before God who is rich in love and mercy we come before you Father in all your complete love and mercy and we ask you to send your Holy Spirit now where we have recognized and repented, fill us with your presence, God. Come and take up that space with your majesty. And I'm just going to be quiet for a moment while you just receive the love and mercy and majesty of God. And I'm reminded of the scripture from Zephaniah that says that the Lord is singing over us. And when we recognize and we repent and we receive his goodness, God, with all the angels, archangels, and all the other spiritual powers on the side of the Lord, they are rejoicing. They are so delighted that we we are celebrating Jesus by inviting him into every space of our lives, even the shadowy bits. So let's turn to sing together, to worship Jesus in all his majesty and to allow the Holy Spirit to take up a fuller residency in our lives together.